You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Houston. And I have a problem. (laughs) Today on the episode, we're reviewing Damien Chazelle's moon landing picture, First Man. And then we'll be taking a look at what may well be Robert Redford's cinematic swan song as an actor, David Lowry's new film, The Old Man and the Gun. That's one small step for seeing, one giant leap for believing. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 173. I don't know what space exploration will uncover, but I don't think it'll be exploration just for the sake of exploration. I think it'll be more the fact that it allows us to see things that maybe we should have seen a long time ago, but just haven't been able to until now. Does anyone have anything else? Yeah. Neil, I was sorry to hear about your daughter. I'm sorry, is there a question? Um, what I, what I mean is, uh, do you think it will have an effect? I think it would be unreasonable to assume that it wouldn't have some effect. Yes, we are here with episode 173. We're going to be reviewing First Man and the Old Man and the Gun. It's a man-centered podcast with two men. Kevin, I... I don't know what to make of this. We probably should have tried to get a, a guest on here to, to maybe balance it out a little bit, but you know, too too late to turn back now, I guess. Too late to turn the capsule back to planet Earth. Kevin, these are some films that we have very much been anticipating. I, I know First Man, for me, was my most anticipated film of the fall season, and the old man and the gun made your list. So this is this is a big episode for us. Yeah, I was, you know, I don't think I had first man at number one, but it was on my list somewhere. So this was the culmination of of much expectation and anticipation. So I'm looking forward to getting down to it. That's right, because first man was on both of our lists. So that that makes sense. Well, we are going to be reviewing these two much-anticipated films on the episode, so let's go ahead and jump right into our discussion of First Man. To get us started, here's the movie's official synopsis. On the heels of their six-time Academy Award-winning smash La La Land, Oscar-winning director Damien Chazelle and star Ryan Gosling re-team for First Man, the riveting story behind the First Man mission to the moon focusing on Neil Armstrong and the decade leading to the historic Apollo 11 flight. A visceral and intimate account told from Armstrong's perspective, based on the book by James R. Hansen, the film explores the triumphs and the cost on Armstrong, his family, his colleagues, and the nation itself of one of the most dangerous missions in history. Now, Kevin, as I was thinking of an entry point for this segment, one word from the synopsis stood out. That's perspective. Unlike other films that have tackled this subject material or similar material, First Man is, strictly speaking, a personal story. This intimacy or perspective affects nearly every aspect of the movie, from the narrative to the camera work to what's in the film and what's not in the film. My question to you is this. Does Chazelle succeed in telling the story of the first moon landing through this prism, or does his choice to focus primarily on Armstrong have its downfalls? 
I think it's a very conceptually strong uh, film. The the choice that Chazelle makes to tell the story through Armstrong's eyes, and not just through his eyes, but in a way that focuses on the literal nuts and bolts of uh, space travel. This is it's not the first time that we've had a movie to focus on the Apollo program, but we haven't really seen a movie like this that situates us so closely to the immediate perspective of the people actually in the capsule. There's always been kind of this this remove, or if, if not a remove, at least uh, a grandeur, a very self-conscious grandeur to previous films about space travel and about the Apollo program in particular. But I think of so many shots from First Man, the, the ones where uh, you know, Armstrong is walking toward a rocket and from the little elevator that's taken him up there and seeing the the supports kind of shaking from the vibrations <laughs> yeah. of the of the pre-ignition or the uh, sequence where he and one of his fellow astronauts in the uh, one of the Gemini flights are you know just caught, you know being something goes wrong they're spinning around and again there's the sound design and this use of extreme close-ups on Armstrong's face to really make a bring bring an immediacy to what is going on and bring us closer than we've really ever been to the sensation of being in orbit around a celestial body. And I think that that's probably the the strongest aspect of this film. And for the most part, I think that's a good hook to to hang the entire film on, even if I might not have been as captivated by it as I as I maybe had hoped to be. Yeah, you know, it's one of those films that is it can be extremely stressful. It can be claustrophobic because, Chazelle succeeds in placing you in the capsule. And just the detail as it pertains to buttons and lights and perspective, it's really wonderful. I think, too, where the movie also works in terms of narrative is this is the story of a man battling grief. And Chazelle connects trauma to purpose, to ambition, to meaning. And I'm sure we'll kind of dig into those themes a little bit more. But it felt like there was a purpose behind the purpose for Armstrong. And I think it's like that for everything in our lives, right? We we might be pining after some sort of accomplishment, but there's something deeper that's propelling us, and we see that in Armstrong's character because of a loss that he experiences very early in the movie, and then some other losses that he experiences. And if you know the story of NASA's Apollo program, uh, you know some of the things that happened and some of the things that really kind of affected him as a person. It's also fascinating, too, because I... I visited, you know, Johnson Space Center many times over the course of my life. It's not too far away. And when you kind of look at some of these capsules and and even some of the shuttle programs and the ships, you know, kind of the wires that are hanging around and the buttons, it feels less glamorous than you think it should be. You know, we're blasting someone to the moon. And 
What I appreciate about this movie is it, it really feels like there are human beings working on this, experimenting on this, trying their best, and just kind of dealing with the blows as they come. So I really do appreciate that perspective, and I feel like it adds flesh to this story that we all know so well. You mentioned loss a couple of times just now, and I think that that is the other thing that I really appreciated about the material that Chazelle is working with here is the way that it frames the uh, historic mission to land on the moon, uh, primarily in terms of its costs, the costs psychologically to Armstrong and his fellows as as you know, some of their colleagues are killed or injured, the cost to Armstrong at home as he finds himself gradually being alienated from, from his family, and the cost on a more difficult to pin down level where merely the sheer act of going for this singular achievement can't help but separate Armstrong from his fellow man he's he's the the title of the film first man is very evocative because it pinpoints that there can only be one person to be the first uh person on the moon the first person to do something and the the willpower and the single-minded focus and the the effort needed to master his own terror at the logistics here that all of that experience comes together and eventually we see over the course of the film begins to act as a separator uh, between him and some of the people he cares about most in the world and i think that it's a nice corrective to see in a biopic uh, against the very easy conventional narrative of you know, the great man version of history, like the the idea that history is moved forward by exceptional people and their heroes and their greatness is uh, a function of the fact that they were simply better than everyone else. They were the only ones who could be the first. And in this film, we see a little bit of pushback saying that, yes, Armstrong was exceptional, but that exceptionalism comes with a cost. There's a price to be paid for attaining the heights that he attains. And I appreciated that Chazelle takes that very seriously in this film, not just in the relationships we see around Armstrong, but also in some of the context, the historical context he provides, the, you know, the opposition to the space race as a frivolous excursion when there are very real problems to deal with. It's all here and that that's pretty compelling stuff. Yeah. And then too, to go along with what you're saying, that Armstrong didn't rise to the top. He didn't go to the moon necessarily because of his skill and ability. Now he was chosen based on his demeanor and based on on, you know, what what he would do with that notoriety. Yes. But he went because he was chosen. Other people could have been chosen. He went because there were people who, who died along the way. And we get this individual who is, who's really searching for the stars and, and almost by luck, he, he does make it. I need to point out 
Some of the supporting cast, there's a great supporting cast here. Claire Foy plays Janet Armstrong, uh, Neil's wife. She does a, I think she does a fantastic job. Jason Clark is very good as Ed White. And then Kyle Chandler, he plays Deke Slayton, who's this big wig NASA man. And then Corey Stahl plays Buzz. Uh, he, you know, Stahl has... He doesn't have very many lines compared to his his part that he plays in in this entire operation. But Stahl does a fantastic job of really kind of uh, helping us understand Aldrin's character and the kind of person that he was. I I, I do want to go back to another point that you made about Armstrong's role as a father and what fame does, or, or I guess you could say what the, what the uh, search for ambition or meaning or purpose does to a person. And we get these kind of great conversations where he's with his children, but he's also kind of detached. And before he goes on the Apollo 11 mission, he's sitting down with his kids, and he's talking to them about the moon, and they're asking him, okay, how long are you going to be gone? And he, he says how long he'll be gone. And one of the boys says, so you're, you're going to miss my swim meet. And something about that scene, I, I think just with that, with that line, was so powerful to me. You have these individuals who are caught up in these grand pursuits. He's also caught up in world politics, Russia, America, a Soviet Union in America. He's caught up in all these different forces. And yet, from the perspective of a child, he just wants to be with his dad. Throughout the film, children, his children are just saying, Dad, will you play with me? Dad, can you play with me? And I, I really appreciated how Chazelle just kind of added those small elements to let the audience know that there are sacrifices to ambition. And he's really kind of returning to the themes that he touched on in Whiplash and in La La Land. What do we do with ambition? How far is too far? What does it mean to be great? And what sacrifices do we have to make along the way? And all of that is really kind of crumbled up into this story uh, about Neil Armstrong getting to the moon. And it, visually, what he does, too, is when we see pictures of the moon throughout the movie, at first it's kind of blurry, and then when we see pictures of the moon later, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. So he has this this grand ambition that becomes clearer over time, but it certainly costs him so much. And if you know much about Armstrong and his wife and later on in history, you know that it does it does cost him something uh, to be the, the first man. Yeah, and this is something that Chazelle underscores through his visuals as well. Um, there are a lot of shots that we get of Armstrong sitting at home where Chazelle very consciously frames up the shot so he looks like he's in a in a capsule even when even when he's at home even when he's on earth he's in a capsule he's by himself he's sort of hermetically sealed off from the familial warmth around him there's you know these compositions where we we see him through a, a darkened doorway in his house he's sitting at a at the kitchen table or he's working at his desk and the the sides of the frame are are dark and the only bit of light we see is, you know, the light from a lamp near him or a light fixture near him. And he's completely alone and he's kind of squeezed in by the darkness on either side of the frame. And it's a really powerful visual motif that Chazelle keeps coming back to that he never really leaves the capsule. He's all in order to ensure that 
the mission is successful, he has to sequester himself away, even from uh, loving his family, because he knows that he might not come back. And the pain of that realization is keeps him at a little bit of remove, even from his own family, which I think is really compelling. I, I kind of wish, Wade, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, that Chazelle had found that kind of visual expressiveness in the space travel segments, which isn't to say that they're not, they're not, they're certainly effective. The, you know, the opening sequence where we see Armstrong in a, in a jet, you know, doing a test flight in the upper atmosphere is just establishes from the beginning that we're going to be seeing the screws rattle in their fittings as he reaches top speeds. We're going to be seeing the, the, the ricketiness of being in a bucket of bolts floating around the earth. That's something that we, we see over and over. I did find that the extreme close-up shaky cam style that Chazelle employs began, began to become monotonous over time. I, I think it lost a little bit of its impact, and the more that Chazelle employed it, the more it felt like the film was kind of being a one-trick pony in those moments, and I was hoping that it would find a way to shift gears into another mode or at least develop that mode in a way that that felt satisfying and it never quite got there for me which is why I came away from this film uh, appreciating it and especially liking the the segments that are set on earth but as time went on I've, I've I've cooled quite a bit on the segments that that are set primarily in space I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that no I I love those segments and I, I thought that Chazelle used this this kind of visual motif of vision so we get these great close-ups of Gosling's eyes and I think his performance it's it's stoic here but I think it's good for portraying Armstrong and we get some great reflections off of his helmet. And there are a few where, at the beginning of the film, there's one where he is he's looking out at Earth. And we get that vision across his uh, the glass in front of his, his face, his helmet. And it's right across his eyesight. And we get some of those things a little bit later on. And then... When we do get to the moon, spoiler alert, they do get to the moon. When we do get to the moon, he has this solar shield in front of his face, and we can't see his eyes anymore. And I, I'm not sure what exactly that means, but there was something really kind of powerful in that moment that we can't see his face anymore. Instead, we're we're kind of focusing around him. We're focusing on the moon. So I I thought visually the the scenes in space were were very good. I didn't get a chance to see it in IMAX, but I was I was reading a review that said the big IMAX sequence is the moon sequence, and I would like to see that those images on the huge screen because even on the screen I saw them on they were really very good and. He, he does something really kind of special here. He makes barren land feel transcendent. And I want to go back a little bit later to, to what that means in terms of spiritual longing that I think this film is trying to say. But he really does something there. And I'm not sure how he does it, but it definitely feels that way. 
Well, I, I I did have the chance to see it in IMAX, and I have nothing but good things to say about the way Chazelle employs that format because when the the switch to the IMAX uh, aspect ratio comes up and uh, you get that experience of having your field of vision essentially widened, it's almost as if as if time and space become dilated. It's difficult to describe exactly how it works, but it works extremely well. And I think Chazelle knows is in full control of his technique in that sequence. It's really wonderful. And, and it was one of the moments in the movie where I felt myself really click with the, the emotional tenor that it was trying to create in me. I, I mentioned already that after a while I began to appreciate it, but I didn't I, I wasn't in love with it the way I had necessarily hoped. But that moon landing sequence when Armstrong eventually makes it to the destination that he's been working toward for the entire film, that is that is an experience. And, and if you have the opportunity to see it in IMAX, I would really recommend it because that moment is probably worth the price of admission all by itself. Yeah, I, I, I need to, to see it because I, I do really love this movie. It's kind of up there if I'm thinking about some of my favorites from the year because of just not not just the space travel, but as you mentioned, some of the best parts of the film are down on Earth. There are these human stories. And so I, I do want to kind of get back to, to this search for transcendence or meaning. So Armstrong is compelled in this film because of grief and of, of tragedy. And it's connected to ambition. And he seems to find some sort of solace when he reaches the moon there there's something important that happens to him there and there's something that happens to us as a viewer watching those sequences and you detailed it very well kevin just even the imax portion of it there's something that kind of happens and i i i wish i could go more into the ending of this film but when the astronauts return home we're reminded of the politics at play. We're reminded of the cost that it took from a national standpoint, a personal standpoint, and that transcendent desire for meaning in the midst of a desolated area of tragedy in his life. It, it sort of goes away, and it feels like this film is searching for some sort of spiritual longing. It's searching after that spiritual longing, and it seems as if it's if it's trying to say that that those big moments, those moments of comfort and of solace do come, but they're easily gone because of other forces. Now, I know this film didn't get into some of the spiritual elements. Uh, Buzz Aldrin, he was a, he was a Christian, and I know he took communion before they landed on the moon, I believe, or while they were on the moon. So those elements didn't come up in the film, which makes sense because this is from Armstrong's perspective and and yet it seems to be a movie that is concerned with what do we do with grief how do we find purpose and meaning in the midst of pain and does that ever stick with us is there something more in this world that will feel that will fill those those holes 
permanently. And I think in that sense, it, it does seem to be concerned with, uh, like I mentioned, transcendent spirituality. And we could even look at it from our Christian perspective and say, you know, it's concerned with spiritual matters from, from our theology as well. So some of those ideas were kind of going around in my mind as I'm watching this movie and as we get to the end. I found myself appreciating the the complexity of the film's treatment of those themes, for sure. The the sheer size and and scale of the undertaking is such that you you can't. It would be impossible to make a movie about the subject without getting into that question to some extent. And I think that Chazelle, for for all his focus on, like I said, the nuts and bolts of of space travel when we do eventually get to that natural climax to the story the contrast to the earlier very tight focus on the practicalities and logistics of space travel the contrast with that when we actually see the fruition of all of that and and the the fruition of the calling that these people felt in getting us to the moon that contrast really is is something to see, and it's quite meaningful, and it's, uh, again, it's worth the full price of admission. Well, listeners, that is our review of First Man from Damien Chazelle, starring Ryan Gosling. It's currently playing everywhere. We would love to hear your thoughts. It's a big movie release, especially the fall season. And, and Kevin, I, I know we don't want to use the O word too early, but I would assume this will probably be up for some Oscars and we'll probably be talking about this again a little bit later on in the year, early next year. If it doesn't at least get nominated for uh, an Oscar for Best Sound Mixing and Editing, I I mean, I don't know what to tell you. That that would just be insanity. Yeah, it would be total insanity, but I think Aquaman comes out before the year is up, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't don't count out Aquaman. Yeah. Uh, well, listeners, make sure to let us know what you think about First Man at Pod at Pod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be reviewing the Robert Redford starring picture, The Old Man and the Gun. song is Smooth Terrain by Evan Schaefer. We want to thank everyone who's taken an opportunity to support us on Patreon. It's really easy. we got a number of tiers. Kevin, I think our most popular one, and the one that I like to talk about the most, is the What Can You Buy for $5 Patreon tier. What can you buy for 5 bucks? I'm really interested. We just talked about space travel. And so here's the question, Kevin. I'm fascinated by what you're going to say. What can what could someone buy for $5? Well, 
Well, Halloween is coming up, and if you're a James Bond fan, what would be a better Halloween costume than the character of Jaws? And I think the uh, the metal dentures that Jaws has in those movies would probably run you a, a cool five bucks. Okay. No, I, th- I think so, too. I was thinking about space. Was he in Moonraker? I have not seen Moonraker. Okay. So you connect. Yeah. I see what you. Okay. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, that connection had not occurred to me at all, but okay. I'm glad that you made it. <laughs> well, those are only $5. But for $5 a month, you can be a Patreon supporter of Seeing and Believing. You support our show. You keep us going. Now that Movie Pass is gone, we need all the help that. Well, it's still around. But now that it's not working at the same level it was, we need all the help we can get. We really appreciate it. Just hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast we really appreciate it yeah and we also appreciate all you listeners who take the time to just leave us feedback on on itunes of course but also we just like getting your tweets and emails every week and we got a few this week wade uh Matali perkins had some thoughts on a star is born which we reviewed last week she has this to say on twitter The 2018 version of A Star is Born is primarily about celebrity and addiction and secondarily about celebrity and artistry, a shift in story reflecting cultural change. It has a Shakespearean sensibility. And then she went on to say that she was listening to our podcast and she agrees with our take and discovered that the film retweeted mine. So that is a really interesting thought. I hadn't seen anybody uh, compare... Uh, a Star is Born to Shakespeare, but I really like uh, mm. Matali's take on that aspect of it. I think that that was really intriguing. No, I think that was that was really great. Thank you for that feedback. We also received a tweet from at Brood, and he said, hey, I'm interested in y'all possibly reviewing the movie Gosnell. So we have not had a chance to review that. I actually don't even know where I can get a hold of that film. But I do want to suggest checking out Karen Swallow Pryor's review for the Washington Post. Uh, It's titled, The Movie Gosnell Has a Double Truth. We Ignore Poor Women and abortion. She does a good job of kind of working through that film, the implications, as well as its merits, as well as things it doesn't do very well. So if you would like to learn more about that film, check out that piece. She's also got a book out called On Reading Well. She's kind of a friend of Christ and Pop Culture, and I'm excited to get through that book. Her work's always great, so make sure to read her post over at The Washington Post. Yeah, that's right. And thanks again to uh, that Twitter user, Francois Smith is his display name. Thank you, Francois, for bringing that documentary to our attention. And thanks to all of you who uh, write in week after week to let us know your thoughts. We love hearing it as always. So what would be worse uh, if I'm lying about this or telling you the truth? Prove it. Prove it? Yeah. Well, what do you do if I can? I won't walk out that door. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I didn't think so. Not because I can't. <laughs> because it's just not my style. Not your style. Mm-mm. You have style. I do. Well, uh, tell me what that is then. My style? Yeah. Okay, well, let's take this place. This place is not my style. I'd say it was a bank. And instead of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window. That lady standing there was the teller behind the window. 
and you just walk in real calm and you find yourself a spot and you sit Both down horses. just like we're sitting here and you wait and you watch so you walk right up look her in the eye and you say ma'am this is a robbery and you show her the gun like this that clip you just heard was from the old man and the gun, which here in the second segment, Wade, is going to dial down the intensity a little bit. I'm preparing my charming roguishness for a workout in this segment, so I hope you're ready for that. I'm I'm definitely ready. I, I've got my 1980s wardrobe on, and I'm already in <laughs> Texas, so we're good to go. Do you, do you have a jaunty hat available? <laughs> Always available. <laughs> Great. Well, The Old Man and the Gun is director David Lowry's follow-up to the much-beloved, at least by us, A Ghost Story. Lowry is a bit more laid back in this effort, reuniting with his Pete's Dragon cast member Robert Redford for what may well be Redford's swan song as an actor. It's a fitting role for the iconic actor, calling on him to marshal his all-American charm to play the role of Forrest Tucker, a 70-something ex-con who gets his kicks from robbing banks. A detective, played by Casey Affleck, is hot on Tucker's trail as Tucker and his two associates blaze a crime spree across the Midwest. But what's puzzling to the detective is Tucker's seemingly unrelenting good manners and lack of an apparent motive beyond the simple joy of the heist. Based on the New Yorker profile of the real-life Forrest Tucker, The Old Man in the Gun is a decidedly low-key look at aging and the meaning of happiness and vocation. So, Wade, like I said, this is... Uh, film from a director that you and I both have a lot of appreciation for, so let's get right down to it. I'm really curious to know, did the old man in the gun do it for you? Did you find a lot to like about this film as you did with The Ghost Story, or did you find it to be a somewhat lackluster follow-up to that film? Well, you know, The Ghost Story was, or A Ghost Story was my favorite film of last year, your favorite film as well, and it's it's very different. So if that one's very <laughs> serious and uh, I don't know if you'd say dark, but very, very contemplative about deep questions, life, death, everything in between, uh, this one is a little bit lighter. It deals with similar material, but it's pretty funny and it's pretty charming. I like the movie. Uh, it's not... It doesn't work in every single aspect, but it's a pretty pleasurable ride. It's a pretty enjoyable ride. And I think it's just enough to where you can kind of sit back with Robert Redford's charming character and just kind of have fun with him. And that's what you can do in this movie and with this movie uh, as a whole. So I, I would say a good outing by Lowry, even if I, I think it, it doesn't work in some respects. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts about that. I actually liked this film quite a bit. If, if I had to pick a a movie currently in theaters that I think is the best. This might be it. I, I'm like you in that I, this isn't the most ambitious film in the world, right? But I do think that there's there's so much uh, joy, I guess, in this film. Or maybe not joy, but there's a quality to this film that is, as you say, pleasurable. But there's also uh, enough ideas floating around in there that ma that makes me feel that it might be a little bit more than the sum of its parts. And this is obviously the Robert Redford show. So much of it is just coasting 
in some respects on Redford's natural charisma, his natural charm, and just kind of enjoying seeing him be the most polite bank robber in the world. But I do think that Lowry, in the midst of telling such a rather straightforward story, does so much to add texture to the film, not only in the uh, the intertitles, which have a have a very late 70s feel to them in in terms of the the filmmaking style. And I think that he also finds a lot of really stirring images and sequences in this film that elevate elevate it above a simple feel-good story and make it a little bit more than that. So I I think this is a a really strong film and I like it quite a bit. I, I, I do agree with you. Uh, it it seems to to be saying that there is something more, and in some respects, I I'm kind of on board with it. So you mentioned some visual flourishes, and it really has this this pop jazzy feel. Whether it's uh, the pans of the camera, or the zooms, or the editing, or the soundtrack, I really dig that vibe. There are a couple of shots too, in addition, that just are, are really powerful, and they kind of sneak up on you if you're not really paying attention, and you'll miss them. So there's there's one scene where Redford is talking to uh, Sissy uh, Spacek, uh, plays a woman named Jewel, and they're in this diner, and we get these you know uh, shots, close close ups of them talking, and then you get kind of this wide shot where. In terms of blocking, there are people out of focus in front of the camera at different positions. And you get the idea that they're just one couple in the midst of all these other young couples. And no one's really paying attention to them. And that kind of feeds into the overall story. Redford is an older man robbing banks. No one's expecting him to do that. And when they do that, they they think it's kind of funny or kind of charming. And I think what what Lowry is saying with, with those shots and that those scenes is that normally when a person gets to the end of their life, they're kind of pushed to the margins. And um and it's very easy for people to look at them and, and, and really kind of think they're not really living or or maybe as Jules' family tells her that you know she shouldn't be on a farm, it's too much for her. And Lowry seems to say, "Hey, there's so much life that if there is blood in your in your body, if there is blood pumping through your body, there's something to be enjoyed about life." And I really do appreciate that. Now, when it comes back to Redford's character, his joy is robbing banks, and he's hurt people he was in relationships with to do that. So I, I, I'm a little, I, I don't really know what the film is trying to say there. And maybe as I work through some things, I'll kind of figure it out, but it, it, it just doesn't kind of mesh well with some of the other points in the movie. And I, I think that um, Casey Affleck's character could, could add some resolve to that possibly, but I don't know if his story kind of weaves in at the right point to be able to kind of add to that question. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Kevin. If I had, uh, if I had to sum up kind of what what I think Lowry is doing with his examination of Forrest Tucker's character is the question of legacy, right? Because you you mentioned quite rightly that Tucker, you know, he is he's very charming on the outside, he's very outwardly charming, 
But he does leave kind of this trail of sundered relationships in his wake. He's not a saint. He's not just a cute, cuddly old man, despite what the news coverage kind of portrays him as. And this film really portrays Tucker as a sort of person who very consciously is kicking against that. This is a guy who has always had a problem with authority, has always felt some need to to prove something about himself. And over the course of the film, we come to understand that more and more as him being a guy who feels old age knocking on his door and he doesn't he doesn't want to give up and and just sort of go quietly into that good night so to speak, but he also doesn't want to let himself be relegated to the position of, you know, of an old man, of an ignored old man, you know, how uh, society tends to push aside the elderly and and think of them, if they think of them at all, as kind of harmless non-entities. And this entire film is Redford's character essentially saying, saying no to that, to to having a romance, to you know having the the glamorous bank robbing lifestyle, to uh, taunting the lawman who's trying to catch him, even to his own de- detriment. These are all the actions of somebody who feels himself being marginalized to some extent and really wants to fight against that. And I think that that's a really interesting way to a really interesting angle to take on the character and i think that lowry does a lot in the way he films uh redford and the way he directs him and some of the incidental elements as well i mean one of the first intertitles in this movie is one of those scene setting things and you know it says it's in oklahoma city it gives the date and then lowry chooses to add a little something to the end of that, he notes that it's 11.59 p.m. And that's his way of tipping his hand to the aunt, saying, like, this is a man who's in the twilight of his life, and that is something that is central to how we need to approach him here. And I think that that might be the key to unlocking exactly what Lowry is trying to say by telling this story. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that. You know, Jules character at one point says, you know, now it's time for me to be selfish. And, you know, what, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean taking charge of your own choices? Or does that mean thinking of you at the expense of some of the people around you? I, I, I'm not sure, but I like the motif that that Lowry is going at. Casey Affleck's character has turned 40. He's feeling really down about himself, and he sees a spark in Redford's character, and it kind of lights him up a bit. There's also this really kind of interesting um, visual callback to Jules bracelets and to Redford's handcuffs and how anybody can be handcuffed in life. And I, I think what Lowry does best is adding these fine little details to a story that's already really great and it's already really charming. And it it just adds to the overall value of the narrative that he is, he is trying uh, to tell here. And I, um, I, I like to... That with Redford, you know, he's played so many different characters. He's, he's in Bush, Butch Cassidy in The Sundance Kid. He plays kind of this cowboy here. And a cowboy who is 
on the run from the law, uh, and instead of stealing because he has to, he does it because he wants to. So there's this flair to it. There's fun to it. And as Lowry's kind of working through the story, he makes the film look like something from when it's set, 1981. You know, it, it, it kind of looks like Steve McQueen's bullet in some of the ways. It's a fast and loose story. You know, that bullet is, is kind of a darker story, but but he has those visual moves to the camera, and I really do appreciate that. And and I think I think the impact at the end where it's saying, hey, at least what I get is, is hey, take charge of your life take every moment make it count i think that's important i just some of those other details i i'm just not sure what that film is tr- what the film is trying to say or if, or if maybe the film is trying to say something but a couple of elements are working against it i think what i've come to appreciate about david lowry as a director the more familiar i've become with him is the way that he imparts these little touches of texture to his films that enrich in in unquantifiable ways, the story that he's trying to tell. So you mentioned already the link between Jules' bracelets, one of which is given to her by Tucker himself, and the handcuffs that adorn Tucker's wrists at various points throughout the movie. Uh, I also want to call out a couple of other shots. There's one that you, you see in the trailer where we see Tucker on the run from the law. He's in a car driving across a field being chased by cops and his his trunk flies, the trunk of the car flies open and these, these bills of money, you know, stream out behind <laughs> him. It's just yeah. this really wonderful image and, and the way that Lowry captures it in the in this wide shot. Give it this. I don't want to say mystical feel. It doesn't feel that like that. But there there's a lightness to it that that goes beyond just the particularity of the moment and feels like it encompasses an emotional reality that that's difficult to really put your finger on. Which is you can probably tell just by how much difficulty I'm having articulating why I like it so much. Similarly, there's another shot where uh, Jewel and Tucker uh, have their have their first kiss. It's kind of the the cliche thing where he drops her off at her home, she walks to her front door, and he runs after her and and, and plants one on her on her front doorstep. And that's that's all well and good, but then Lowry keeps the camera on Sissy Spacek as uh, Robert Redford returns to the car and drives off. And when he turns the car back on and and pulls away, we see the red of his taillights reflected on her face. And that's just such a wonderfully cinematic touch that does more than any dialogue can to, to let us into what she's feeling in that moment. And also to deepen the story a little bit. That's not just another one of these stories about... Uh, a cute old person who's trying to live it up one last time before you know before uh, receding into the twilight of his life. No, there's something more to it, and I think that that's all to Lowry's directing. Yeah, and there's some great montages too. I I oh, like yes. a good montage, and there are <laughs> some really great montages here. And I too, I was thinking about Redford, and I can't help but superimpose his career onto this story it's 
supposedly the last film he's going to act in. We'll see if that happens. I think he'll direct and produce some other movies, but this is kind of his his last role on screen. And I, I wonder if for him, you know, bank robbing in the story for his character is something that he, like we mentioned, he doesn't have to do, but he wants to do. He finds this childlike joy in it. And it, it almost feels like Redford... The way he plays this role, it's as if to say he doesn't have to act anymore. He doesn't, but he but he he lights up the screen. There's a joy in his eye while he's playing this part. And what brings us joy? And I and like I said, it's hard because in the movie, right? What brings his character joy is robbing banks, and he kind of hurts relationships around him. But the idea of what brings us childlike joy and what brings us wonder and we can get into this monotonous level within life where we just let the days creep on by and maybe we watch too much TV or maybe we spend too much time on social media and we don't live like one of the characters says he does. He's, he's concerned with living and all that's really great. It, this is it for, for the problem that I have with this movie. Uh, it's, I, it's really is a, a very good film and anchored by some great performances. I got to point out, uh, Danny Glover, Tom Waits, I think they're really good in this film. They're uh, partners in crime with Redford's character. So a lot to like with this movie. Yeah, and it seems like a good encapsulation of this film to observe that, you know, one of the things, one of the ways that Redford's character is described by another character uh, when they're being interviewed by the police is he just seemed happy. And I think that that's, it's a great encapsulation, not only of the film, but also just as a way of describing how Redford can be so effortlessly captivating when he's on the big screen. Well, that is our review of The Old Man in the Gun. It should have uh, reached release in most theater locations by this point, but we would definitely recommend that if you're interested in it, see it sooner rather than later because it's a smaller movie and theater screens are only going to become more crowded as Oscar season heats up here towards the end of the year. So see it if you can and let us know what you think about it. Uh, but now, Wade, it is time to close out the show with the segment where we recommend one thing from the world of television or film to our listeners. What recommendation do you have for us this week? Well, this is a film that I think has been talked about on the podcast. It's a really good film. It's All is Lost, starring Robert Redford. I, I went the Robert Redford route on my recommendation this week. If you're if you don't like Robert Redford talking, uh, maybe you'll still like this movie because there's not a lot of talking in this film. Redford plays uh, a man who is sailing and he comes into contact with a shipping container at sea. And he is an extremely resourceful man and he does everything to try to survive. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a look at a man who's staring death in the face and we don't really get a backstory but yet we we don't really need to it's directed by jc uh shindor and i think it's streaming on amazon prime right now so if you haven't seen all is lost from 2013 i would definitely check it out an incredible performance by robert redford 
Yeah, that is a really, really good pick. I like that film quite a bit. And it was one of those that I saw long after I made my top 10 for that year. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I just didn't have a chance to get on there. But if I could go back and and remake that list, All is Lost would be my top 10 for sure. I think it's it's just a, it's a remarkable performance and it's just a remarkable film all around. So yeah, yeah really good pick. Yeah. Well, my recommendation for this week is also Redford-inspired, although in this case he is not in front of the camera but behind it. My recommendation is 1994's Quiz Show, starring John Turturro and Ray Fiennes. This is a film that follows the quiz show scandals from the 1950s surrounding the 21 quiz show. So Turturro plays the this champion on this quiz show who eventually gets pushed aside by the producers in order to allow a new champion, Charles Van Doren, played by Fines, to come to the fore. And of course, in order to do this, the producers employ all sorts of trickery that essentially destroy the integrity of of the game show itself. But what's really interesting about this film is how Redford working from a script by Paul Atanasio really explores how personal integrity can become compromised, the the various ways it can and the various motives that a person can have when they go about compromising that integrity. I think it's it's a really interesting film. It's got a great performance from especially Turturro is is really good in it and I don't know have with Better Call Saul having just wrapped up its fourth season I'm I'm also kind of thinking about integrity I guess I have integrity on the brain and this is another great story this one based on a real a real life event that explores those themes and I, I think it's quite good so check it out 1994's quiz show yeah it's real good and you forget about Redford being a director and he's directed a, a number of films and that one is it's it's yeah it's it's a great pick and i really uh, really do like it well that is our episode listeners we want to thank you for listening to seeing and believing it's brought to you by christandpopculture.com our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen if you would like to contact us make sure to tweet us at cbelievepod at cbelievepod you can also contact us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com. Make sure to leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps us out. For this week, though, I'm Wade Beard, and my co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.